I have pleasure now in introducing Dr. Mark Cable, who is a cultural historian based at UCD School of History and Archives. Mark has published widely in the area of early modern Irish cultural history. He is also interested in the history of book and the British Atlantic. And uh, he was recently here with us as part of a new research project uh, being undertaken by UCD and Marsh's Library on Mapping Readers and Readership in Dublin, 1826 to 1926, A New Cultural Geography. So um, as you can see, he, his, his cultural interests have a very wide span. And today, um, he's picking up, in a way, from where we've just left off with the Old English and their sense of cultural superiority. We now are turning to the Gaelic cultural context for Hugh O'Neill. Thank you very much, uh, Siobhan. Such is the inevitable incompleteness of the historical record that historians are often obliged to sift through fragmentary testimony in an attempt to reconstruct decisive events of the past. All the more challenging are efforts to evaluate the mental processes of individuals who have shaped history in a myriad of ways. Prominent at a time of unprecedented political and social change in Ireland, Hugh O'Neill was arguably a quintessentially modern figure whose life experience was determined both by conflict and interchange across a range of cultural, linguistic, ethnic, and religious domains. Notwithstanding such flux and uncertainty, Hugh O'Neill was a Gaelic lord whose worldview was formed within a particular milieu. O'Neill's cultural context was informed firstly in personal terms by his status as a native speaker of Irish, and secondly by the ideology and worldview of the Gaelic literati. In this paper, I would like in the first instance to attempt to retrieve something of the Gaelic voice of O'Neill, while subsequently situating him within an elite milieu through which the presentation of his status and authority was mediated. In this respect, an example of O'Neill's correspondence in Irish uh, will be examined, while his rep representation as Ireland's liberator and saviour in a vitally powerful bardic poem will be discussed, with a view to evaluating aspects of his projection through the ideology of Gaelic lordship. On the 6th of February, 1600, Hugh O'Neill dispatched a brief letter to Sir John McCoughlin of Delvin. In the absence of a Gaelic chancery in the early modern period, the fortuitous survival of this letter provides a rare glimpse of a strategic communication from one Gaelic lord to another. The letter is concise and elegantly written. Indeed, notwithstanding its carefully calibrated tone of menace, the language and style of the letter are indicative of an adept and assured command of the language. In fact, it seems certain the letter was never actually received by its addressee, as it was intercepted by the Secretary of State for Ireland, Sir Geoffrey Fenton, who was responsible for its um, preservation. Apparently written while O'Neill was moving southwards, the missive was in response to a previous communication from McCoughlin, which, uh, which clearly had displeased O'Neill. It is worth reading the original text in Irish in order to gain a sense of its imperious and dismissive tone. And arguably, this is the closest we'll ever get to hearing uh, O'Neill um, speak in, in, in his native language. So I'm going to read it. Um, the letter Irinach Gibe Gling, Agus Nak or Sum 
tugimit gordina in arnaig um dinishin. Davrishin, gada gakait niena shivshivur ma fein denig ar nulkna in mede gugrihiklif the yen of de. Agusta yenemna, the yenemna, vor nulksa for her nihil maletol de, a knuck dubmania onail. Our greetings to you, McCoughlin. We have received your letter, and what we understand from it is that you are simply engaging in sweet words and evasion. Those who are not with us and who are not working for a just outcome, from our perspective, we consider such a person to be against us. Consequently, in every instance where you work to your own good, let you attempt to inflict harm on us insofar as you can, and we will do our utmost to inflict harm on you along with God's will. I love God's will being interjected there at the very end. <laughs> at Knockdowny, the 6th of February, 1600, O'Neill. Infused with a sense of menace, the contents of this letter, possibly committed to writing by a professional scribe, reveal a seamless amalgam of formality and Machiavellian guile. It is noteworthy that O'Neill signs himself as Lord of his sept and that he does not deploy his English title. Such usage complements O'Neill's decision to have himself inaugurated according to traditional custom as Lord of his name at Tullahogue in 1595. The O'Neills of Tyrone had traditionally been inaugurated standing on the stone of kings at Tullahogue, and its validatory function accounts for its iconoclastic destruction by Lord Mountjoy in 1601. This communication is coded within a purely Gaelic referential schema. While another longer tract of prose in Irish dated February 1601 on the exaction of Bunukti, uh, wages and provisions for soldiers or mercenaries levied on a given locality, uh, has also been attributed to O'Neill. The laconic note sent to McCoughlin provides a glimpse of its author's autocratic mindset. Having acknowledged O'Neill's high level of accomplishment in terms of the Gaelic uh, linguistic idiom, and he's really a beautiful piece of, of, of writing, it's extraordinarily um, well constructed, it is necessary to evaluate his broader cultural uh, sensibility. When the courtier, author, and translator, Sir John Harrington, visited the Earl of uh, Tyrone's household at Dungannon in October 1599, he described a scene which is suggestive in terms of O'Neill's cultural adaptability. Harrington encountered O'Neill's sons, Hugh and Henry, in the company of their two tutors, a Franciscan called Peter Nangle, and, and I quote, a younger scholar whose name I know not. This latter individual has been identified as Amoch Angle, a future Franciscan who was consecrated Archbishop of Armagh in 1626. Harrington wrote that the boys were, and I quote, the boys were of good, towardly spirit, their age between 13 and 15, in English clothes, like a nobleman's sons, with, a vel with velvet jerkins and gold lace, both of them speaking the English tongue. Harrington is perhaps uh, best remembered today for his translation to English of Ludovico Ariosto's Orlando Furioso. The earliest version of uh, Ar Ar Ariosto's poetic, uh, rom uh, poetic uh, romance epic in Italian, which chronicles the fortunes of Charlemagne, Orlando, and the Franks as they battle uh, the Saracens appeared in 1516. The poem was not published in its complete form until 1532, and Harrington's English translation of the poem was published in 1591. Perhaps not surprisingly at Dungannon, Harrington produced what he called, and I quote, my English translation of Ariosto, which I got at Dublin, which their teacher took very thankfully and soon after showed it to the Earl, 
who called to see it openly. Indeed, O'Neill asked to have some of the poem read aloud to him, and Harrington recorded that, I quote, I turned, as it had been by chance, to the beginning of the 45th canto and some other passages of this book. Now, this vignette hints at the cultural complexity and richness of O'Neill's experience. It can hardly have been a matter of chance that the Earl of Tyrone had entrusted his son's education to a Franciscan tutor, a member of an order traditionally influential and popular in Gaelic Ireland. At this juncture, the Franciscans played an increasingly critical role in the propagation of counter-reformation Catholicism among the Gaelic Irish. The 1607 establishment of the Franciscan College of St. Anthony at Louvain, Leuven or Louvain, whatever we want to call it, inaugurated a continental hub of mission, for missionary and cultural outreach to Gaelic speakers in Ireland and Scotland. Moreover, in 1600, Amoch Angle accompanied Henry O'Neill to Salamanca, where, uh, where he was sent by his father as a gesture of good faith in exchange for military support from, Henry, uh, from Philip III. Henry, whose mother was Siobhan, sister of Hugh Roe O'Donnell, was enrolled at the University of Salamanca. At Salamanca also, MacAngle entered the order of Friars Minor around the year 1603. Now, following his, his ordination, MacAngle was appointed preacher to Henry O'Neill's Irish regiment in the Spanish Netherlands in 1605. Significantly, MacAngle's publication in 1618 of a devotional work entitled Scahan Hacramenta Nahiri is emblematic of how the Louvain Franciscans harnessed the power of print technology to advance their counter-reformation objectives in a Gaelic guise. Therefore, Henry's formation within, within a Franciscan ambiance is indicative of how enmeshed he and his father were within a, a Franciscan religious and cultural milieu, which was shaped by an allegiance to counter-reformation, Catholicism, and Gaelic cultural expression. Yet, Harrington's account of, how, of Hugh and Henry O'Neill alludes to their English dress and competence in the language. The family's interest in a classic work of Italian humanism in an English translation further indicates how the O'Neills moved fluidly and deftly within a variegated cultural context. Irrespective of broader political change uh, engendered by the Crown's move uh, to consolidate its written Ireland, this was a period of transformation and enrichment for elite Gaelic culture as it infused and absorbed diverse influences from humanist scholarship, the power of printing, the printing press, printing culture, confessional antagonisms, and heightened interchange with English and other European societies. In many ways, the encounter between Sir John Harrington and the O'Neills on the cusp of the 17th century is emblematic of this phase of accelerated cultural reconfiguration. The historian, uh, Timothy Brooke has described the 17th century as a time when, and I quote, people had to adjust how they acted and thought in order to negotiate the cultural differences they encountered, to deflect unanticipated threats and respond uh, cautiously to equally unexpected opportunities. The 17th century was the age of improvisation. Hugh O'Neill's versatility and capacity for ideological reinvention are counterpointed by the transformation of learned Gaelic culture in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. If, as Hiram Morgan has argued, that O'Neill faced two key challenges uh, during the Nine Years' War, centering on the creation of a credible political ideology and a quest for religious and constitutional uh, validity, 
It is arguable that a Gaelic grandee of such a stature might instinctively resort to the manipulation of tradition to underwrite his aspirations. Of course, praise poets had long served as purveyors of ideological imprimatur to the Gaelic elite. Although ca characterized by a mosaic of localized lordships of, various, of diverse degrees of magnitude and influence, the Gaelic territories of Ireland and Western Scotland were nonetheless remarkably homogenous in some key cultural respects. The use of a highly standardized literary register of classical Irish by an elite of bardic poets from the 12th century down to the 17th century underpinned an often vibrant learned culture centered on syllabic verse, prose, law, and medicine. Praise poets who positioned themselves um, centrally within the Gaelic polity as advocates of ideological sanction and dynastic validation were immersed within a communicative nexus centered on script and orality. Notwithstanding the vagaries of history and chance, the survival of more than 2,000 bardic poems for, uh, dating from the 12th century to the early 17th century is indicative of the cultural and political significance accorded such communally focused poetry. Yet, it seems that bardic testament in respect to Hugh O'Neill is quite elusive and scant. The absence of a bardic corpus relating to O'Neill is puzzling, given that it was usual for Gaelic and Gaelicized uh, Anglo-Norman lords to extend patronage to praise poets, to praise poets in an effort uh, to secure their status as dynasts in the traditional heroic mode, and with a view also to establishing their posthumous um, reputation as discerning patrons of the literati. Collections of poems addressed to various patrons within noble families such as the Maguires, O'Hara's, and O'Burns have survived and are known as Dunri, or poem books. No such Dunra has survived for O'Neill. However, it seems quite unlikely that he did not preside over a modicum of bardic, of bardic patronage. Given the apparent lack of evidence of, um, of his patronage of praise poets, Hiram Morgan has suggested that, that in his quest to replace localized dynastic politics with a nationally structured system, that the supposed seigneurial focus of bardic poets was superfluous to O'Neill's strategic requirements. Instead, Morgan has argued that O'Neill's preferred instruments of communication were the proclamation and preaching. Moreover, Hiram Morgan has suggested that it was the Anglo-Irish that O'Neill needed to persuade of the legitimacy of his actions during the Nine Years' War, and that he aspired to persuade them of his position using their rhetoric of commonwealth. However, in the light of the peninsular focus, all-island uh, cultural focus of the poets, and the pervasiveness, the pervasiveness of elite Gaelic cultural expression across the island in the late 16th century, it seems unlikely that a shrewd communicator such as O'Neill would have neglected the prestige and propaganda function of bardic poetry. Lack of a corpus of poetry addressed to O'Neill may derive prosaically from the fact that it, sim it simply has not survived the various vicissitudes of time and history. However, an extraordinarily sub subversive praise poem addressed to O'Neill is extant, and you can actually see it as you come in on the left-hand side in the library. It is the poem beginning, and it's up here behind me, it is the poem beginning, Moor the Vil Evenus Ern, which I wish now to consider. As no scholarly modern edition of this long and complex poem has been published, my remarks on the transcribed text recently made available in Demian McManus and Ona Rahala, a bardic miscellany, 500 po bardic poems from manuscripts in Irish and British libraries published in 2010, my, my remarks are necessarily exploratory. 
The poem is extant in Royal Irish Academy Manuscript 23F16, which is as you come in, otherwise known as the Ogara Manuscript, or the Laurigara. And a redaction of the text is also available in a 19th century uh, manuscript, British Library, Edgerton 111. Now, the Ogara Manuscript is a literary compendium which was compiled by Fergal Dove Ogara, OSA, in the Low Countries, including at Lille and in Brussels between 1655 and 1659. It includes a diverse range of poems composed from members of noble families such as O'Connor Sligo, O'Brien of Thomond, O'Neill of Ulster, and Maguire of Fermanagh. The poem for O'Neill is followed by the date 10 December 1655, which presumably indicates when the scribe entered it into the compilation. The author of the poem for O'Neill was a praise poet of considerable distinction. Faril Og Machavord, who lived between the 1540s to about 1618, was a member of a hereditary Bardic family who served as, a, and he had served as a poet and retainer to the O'Donnells of Tyrconnell. One of his earliest poems was composed after the, after the inauguration of Turlock Linnock O'Neill in 1567 in celebration of that, of that occasion. Malkavard spent time in Scotland in the early 1580s, where it is recorded that in 1581 he received official payment of £100 for poetry composed for James VI. So he's a somewhat unusual bardic poet. This sojourn in Scotland informed his consciousness of contemporary religious dissension and heightened his patriotic awareness. It is likely that it was at this point also that Machabard acquired a knowledge of the history of the Stuart dynasty, evident in a celebrated uh, composition outlining James VI and first ancestral uh, claim to the kingdoms of Scotland, England, and Ireland. It begins three corona egart hamish, three crowns in uh, James's charter. Although on intimate terms with the O'Donnells, a degree of attention appears to have marked his relationship with the family. When Hugh Rowe acceded to the leadership of the O'Donnells in 1592, Faril Og composed an elaborate inaugural ode documenting the legitimacy of his succession to the invocation of classical bardic tropes and themes. Moreover, Machavard's self-confessed volatile disposition possibly contributed to the strains in his relationship with Hugh Rowe evident in the poem Undus Olav Onori, A Chief Poet's Wealth is a Lord's Glory. And in the same vein, relations between Machavard and Rory O'Donnell during the latter's lordship soured to such an extent that the poet withdrew temporarily to Munster. Towards the end of his life, around 1618, Machavard endured an impoverished exile on the continent. It is known he journeyed to Louvain, where he addressed two poems to Flattery Omwell Connery, or Florence Connery, lamenting his straitened circumstances. Crucially, Omwell Connery was a member of a Connacht learned family who had studied for the priesthood at Salamanca and subsequently entered the Franciscans. Prefiguring the printing program of St. Anthony's College, Omel Conneret was committed to the use of the Gaelic vernacular for devotional purposes. For instance, in 1598, he sent to Ireland his Gaelic translation in manuscript of a Spanish catechism. Appointed Minister Provincial of the Irish Franciscans in 1606, um, he was central to the establishment of St. Anthony's uh, in the following year. Now, he enjoyed close links, Omel Conneret, to the, the O'Neill family. A vocal supporter of the Earl, he had promoted the appointment of Henry O'Neill as the Colonel of the Irish Regiment, founded in 1605. And when the exiled Earls arrived in Dewey, Dewey in November 1607, they were welcomed by Omel Conra, who accompanied them to Louvain. With support from Tyrone, he was appointed Archbishop of Tume in 1609. 
And appropriately, he was present at the death of Hugh O'Neill in Rome in July 1616. Like A. Mark Angle, he was cognizant of the communicative power of print technology and of the requirement to move beyond the constraints of scribal circulation through which Gaelic literature and scholarship were disseminated. His Gaelic translation of a Catalan devotional work was published as Cahana Cravic at Louvain in 1616. It is known that Omel Conra spent some time at this university city in the Spanish Flanders in 1618, and it is assumed that it was on this occasion that he was approached in verse by Faril Og Macavord. Nothing is known of the Gaelic poet after this date, and it's unclear whether he died on the continent or had returned to Ireland by the time of his passing. What is apparent, I would argue, is how deeply embedded Hugh O'Neill and his sons were within a highly effective Franciscan network committed to advancing counter-reformation Catholicism within a Gaelic cultural format. While the precise compositional context of Machavard's uh, poem, uh, which you'll see here, for Tyrone remains to be determined, an internal reference to the, lat to the latter's presence in Rome narrows the period of composition to between 1608 and 1616. Comprising 61 quatrains, Faril Og opens the line, the poem with the line, Moor the Ville Evenus Ern, which immediately ascribes a bewitching quality to Ireland's natural beauty. Indeed, this very attribute had lured previous invaders to the island's shores, and all these adventurers had encountered calamity on such a scale that their graves were scattered across Ireland. Indeed, even many of the Gaelic Irish had suffered death because of the island's seductive um, attractions. In fact, over time, many had died, including kinsmen, friends, and multiple family members had perished in the quest to conquer the island. Indeed, such had been the countless number who was, numbers who had fallen as a result of conflict, deriving from attempts to, uh, suppress, to conquer the island, that attempts to enumerate their number would be as futile as counting leaves in a forest or stars in the sky. From the time of creation, the extent of dissension and strife generated by attempts to control Ireland had not had merited the advantage accrued. Importantly, the lessons of the past were particularly relevant to O'Neill at this juncture. O'Neill chaura tur cashel, dobunis nebrihre shin. In fact, Machavard alludes to the various hardships already endured by O'Neill on account of Ireland. However, he will be compensated for the various misfortunes inflicted on him in the struggle for supremacy, and as a result, prosperity will prevail and enmity will recede. Importantly, Machavard envisages a pan-insular context, an all-island context, to O'Neill's return to Ireland as a messianic liberator. There is no trace of a regional or provincial perspective in the scenario envisaged by the poet. In typically bardic fashion, Machavard draws on pseudo-historical precedent to support his case for the triumphant return of O'Neill. Such a development had supposedly long been foreseen in various venerable prophecies and all now awaited his intervention. Key on Foig, prophet, not hunger a hocht. Who is the prophet who hasn't prophesied his coming? Choch eg anmenra ortocht. The exiled Tyrone must avoid disproving such predictions and return to his native land. O'Neill is literally the human embodiment of the healing herb of Ireland's wounds. Turning away from the Gaelic tradition, Machavar draws an Old Testament imagery when he compares O'Neill with Moses. Such a comparison elaborates on the presentation of O'Neill as his people's prophesied hero. The poet alludes to the circumstances in which, was, in which uh, Moses was born, how God chose him to lead the Hebrews from Egypt, their escape through the Red Sea aided by God and Pharaoh's dramatic demise. 
He declares that O'Neill will be a second Moses delivering the Irish from strife, big in afwishi agreeing. The contemporary political implications of Machavard's account of how Moses had delivered his people from Egyptian bondage are obvious. Reverting to the present, the foreigners dominating Ireland were the, the collective equivalent of the Pharaoh, while the Gaelic Irish compared to the exiled children of Israel. Uh, like the wave which submerged the Pharaoh, a similar deluge will vanquish the enemies of the Enail. Once Hugh returns home with the exiled Israelites of, Ar- Israel- Israelites of Ireland, he will alleviate the distress of all. Again, reverting to an exemplary precedent deriving from the Gaelic tradition, Machavard argues that in returning to liberate his people, that O'Neill will fulfill a range of prophecies made by legendary or quasi-historical figures such as Barcon, Fihil, Flattery, and Flan Fila. However, crucially, Machavard is emphatic that O'Neill now represents the hero destined to relieve his people. Efein lysosus ar lot, tongertig kriuke kormuk. In practical terms, Hugh will deliver a judgment of separation between Ireland and the invaders. And he will expel the foreign battalions from Dublin. Now Ireland looked to Rome for its liberation. Sul Rissen Rove Egrilan. Machavart had developed the practice of appending um, extraneous quatrains in it, to his poems in praise of two early patrons, uh, Conor Rourke, who died in uh, 1577, and A. Machanissa, who died in um, 1595, and uh, in devotion to St. Peter. So characteristically, Machavart concludes his poem for O'Neill with three such appended quatrains. Of course, Machavart was not, u- his, not unique in his use of the comparison between the Irish and the ancient Hebrews. Another northern poet, Farflaha O'Ganeev, in a poem lamenting the plight of the Gaelic Irish entitled Machrui Maratod Gael, My War, How the Irish Are of the Gaelic Irish, which was possibly composed in the aftermath of the Ulster Plantation, also compared the Irish to the children of Israel in their Egyptian captivity. Interestingly, in this instance, O'Ganeev bemoaned the absence of another Moses to liberate the Gael from their oppression. However, Machavar's argument that O'Neill's return to Ireland would signal the end of English hegemony constitutes a persuasive example of his representation as a national hero. The poet exploits the figure of Moses as a symbol of dynamic reaction. The poem is unambiguous in its its depiction of the Irish as besieged exiles and their own homeland awaiting a messianic liberator. While insufficient evidence precludes a definitive evaluation of O'Neill's attitude to praise poetry, it is clear that an eminent poet like Ferriol Oak Machavard creatively utilized tradition to cast O'Neill as a liberator within a context of patriotic resistance to external domination. Moreover, given O'Neill's exposure to a Franciscan nexus heavily influenced by uh, elite Gaelic culture, it is hardly credible that he would have discounted the strategic value of appropriating tradition to his cause. In any case, the Franciscans were acutely conscious of the need to incorporate Tyrone and his sons within their sphere of influence. In a letter in Irish dated 19 September 1605, composed by the Fermanagh praise poet and future Franciscan, Yulo Brida Ohosa, it is possible to discern the importance accorded O'Neill's sons by the Gaelic intellectual elite. Ohosa informed his correspondent Robert Nugent of his desire to leave Douay to study theology at Louvain. Tellingly, Ohosa added two immediate reasons for such a move. His wish to be with Nugent and with O'Neill's son, 
were the latter to arrive in the Spanish Netherlands. Unus gemeb mishne er einval rivshe agus evogus da makineo da digigshe dantir. Ironically, the excellent reputation of Louvain's university was re- relegated to a lowly uh, third place as a reason for relocation. Ahosa, who was ordained a Franciscan priest in 1609, inaugurated the Franciscans' program of print in Irish with the publication of a Christian doctrine in Antwerp in 1611, which was reprinted by the friars in Louvain in 1614-15. Although the Franciscan print initiative was a distinctly belated reaction to the appearance of Protestant Gaelic translations, which dated back to the first book printed in Irish in Dublin in 1571, the Franciscans quickly outpaced their evangelical foes in terms of volume and impact of publication. The final clue, which may be adduced in terms of O'Neill and Gaelic culture, centers on the presence of a bardic poet in his continental retinue. Spanish references place the prominent Donegal poet, Onro Macavard, or, and I quote, the Irish nobleman Don Eugenio Bardio, in the service of O'Neill in Flanders and in Rome during the period 1612-14. Such was the perceived importance of Macavar that he was in receipt of a pension from the Spanish monarchy from at least as early as 1608. Even in the dark days of exile, O'Neill called in the age-old diplomatic role of the, the poets to represent his interests. While O'Neill was undoubtedly a quintessential Renaissance man, he was equally attentive to the prestige of Gaelic tradition and the validation it conferred in his quest to create a new political ideology for Ireland. Thank you.